The text, this is part two of the glory of the Father. It really kind of hangs together as one message. I'll be reiterating some things from last night, possibly. The glory of the Father. We'll also be looking at Romans 7, 6, just a couple of text points for context. Oh, here it is. I was looking for this announcement. The ladies are planning. I'm sorry I haven't given this before. I just finally, I got it right here. The ladies are planning a bus trip to the Sight and Sound Theater in Lancaster, PA, to see the production Jonah, which I understand is fantastic. This event will be on Monday, October 9th, and there's an information and sign-up sheet at the table if you're planning to attend. Please let Joanne, Mrs. Stewart back there, or Kim, who's not here right now, know ASAP. Is that still okay to let you know? Okay. And speaking of that, Jonah... Pam and I are planning to take our grandsons to it this week, and that was always their one of their favorites of the Bible stories. I used to read them. Other than the real favorite was the crucifixion and followed by the resurrection, of course, the gospel. But um, since we're going to do that, you won't have me to kick around this week. That was what Nixon said when he retired. I don't know if you remember. You won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. But um, we will have our newly, they're no longer newly minted pastors. They're, they have just passed their one-year anniversary of ordination, which was July 16th, I think. And so Wednesday night, Brian's going to bring the second part of his very well-developed Kinsman Redeemer message from Ruth chapter 2. I was very impressed by the message. And he has a part two coming, so that'll be August 2nd. And then the Phil Henry Power Gospel, always a popular Tetelestai item, will be occurring on Thursday, the 3rd. So that's going to be a special kickoff for August. And I hope you'll all attend and be as diligent to attend when others are speaking. And I always think of Elijah sending Elisha and the general Naaman didn't like that. He wanted Elijah to be there instead of Elisha. And so, because he rejected Elisha, who was sent by Elijah, the prophet said, okay, then we won't heal you of leprosy. (laughs) So he eventually, you know, anyone God calls places in the pulpit is filled with the Spirit, will have a message that will heal your leprosy and mine. The glory of the Father, part two. And please notice that this is a hangs together with last night's message, and we'll take a few moments of silent preparation. Father, perhaps the best definition of what we're doing right now is found in 2 Corinthians 3.18, looking as in a glass 
at the glory that shines from the face of Jesus Christ until we are changed into that image. That's what we're doing. And Father, the glory that shines from his face is your own glory. The knowledge of the glory of God shines from his risen face, a face that went through the unspeakable humiliation and shame of Calvary, a face that was spit upon, a face from which men punched and abused and left open to be shamed on a, crucifi- on a crucifix. The same face now of the risen Christ is that in which we see as in a glass darkly so far, but we will soon see face to face. That glory that shines into our own hearts, a glory that transforms, that changes without our trying or travailing. With that in mind, Father, as to what we are doing right now, may we also know that the only way we receive insight is by the Holy Spirit, who is, in fact, the spirit of the crucified Christ, as well as your spirit, Father. So we present our bodies to you as a living sacrifice afresh for the purpose of the restructuring of our thinking, to have a viewpoint that is in connection with a new creation that's adjusted radically by the cross of Christ. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, just Romans 6, 4, for the, the first verse that was my attention was drawn to when this thought came to me, the glory of the Father, Romans 6, 4, just as Christ, the second half of Romans 6, 4, 6, 4b, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we, too, implication being raised by the glory of the father may walk in a new way of life Romans 7 6 but now we have been released from the law Torah which is one of the enslaving elements of the cosmos as we know since we have died to what held us so we may serve in the new way of the spirit. So please notice there's a new way of life by the glory of the Father in 6.4 because we have died with Christ and we're buried with him and raised with him. But now that new way of life is called the new way of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. The glory of the Father that raised Jesus from the dead is the glory by which we may walk in a new way of life, a way of life that's altogether new, that's altogether unlivable by our own power and energy. This new way of life, according to Romans 7, 6, is the new way of the Spirit in which we may serve this time, not walk, but serve the Father. And we know that's not mentioned here, but it's implied. Serve the Father as priests. If you compare to Revelation 1, 5 through 6. 
There's no contradiction then between the new way of life by the glory of the Father and the new way of the Spirit. Because in a very real sense, the Spirit is the glory of the Father. The book of Acts, in its opening verses, tells of the risen Jesus giving his apostles orders through the Holy Spirit, emphatically through the Holy Spirit. Acts is all about divine mission two, but it's all about its roots in divine mission one. And there's always the remembrance of the death of Christ by crucifixion, not just his death, but the means of his death, which was crucifixion and the instrument of his death, which is the cross. The Holy Spirit will not let you forget it. So if you're living in the spirit, you will not be allowed to forget Jesus Christ and him crucified. If you see a universal horizon, you see the breadth of salvation, it's useless to see that because universalists, as they're called, have seen that for centuries. It's useless to see that breadth without seeing the depth in the cross of Jesus Christ, in the face of the crucified Christ. For in crucifixion, unlike any other form of death, you're not allowed a hood over your face which is the last vestige of humiliation. Most all ways of putting people to death, there is the option of the hooded face, whether it's lynching, whether it's electrocution, whether it's firing squad, because there's something about the face and the contortion of death that's the ultimate shame of execution. And Jesus Christ was not allowed the hood over his head, his face open to the punches of the Romans who abused him, receiving the spittle of the soldiers who abused him, also received the refuse, the garbage, and the dung that was tossed at him from the passers-by when he was crucified. This is what makes this face so glorious to me. The face that we can look into. Because the face of the crucified one, contorted in a ghastly way, only reveals the terrible state from which we needed to be redeemed. So the glory that shines from the face of Jesus Christ totally overwhelms the unspeakable humiliation that's shown in his face on Calvary. Now, I'm, I'm saying that right off the start so that you're, you know I'm not talking about a triumphal Christian life. The, the life that a lot of Christians would like us to have is one that's total victory, no adversity, no suffering, no identification with the cross, just triumph, just winning, just all the good stuff. And that is an offense to God. For even as the cross is an offense to man, the avoidance of the cross is an offense to God. 
Because Peter said to Jesus, far be it from, may God not let this happen, that you would go to the cross. And Jesus said, get behind me. You are an offense to me. The attitude that avoids the cross is is an offense to God, even as the cross is an offense to man. And it should also always be not just merely attractive to us. It should be repulsive and repellent to us because it's the picture of the terrible wrong that the creation had entered into and a picture of the terrible price that had to be paid to set creation right. Now, the book of Acts in its opening verses tells us of the risen Jesus giving his apostles orders, dia pneumatos hagiu, through the Holy Spirit. During the time between his resurrection and his ascension, that's Acts 1-2. He goes on to say that after he had suffered, you see, they can't, you can't even get away from this. After he had suffered is the next thought. After he had suffered, the lamb that was suffering, the suffering lamb. Meta to pathane. After he suffered, he also appeared to them and gave many proofs that he was alive. We might call that proof of life in an extraordinary way. Many proofs that he was, in fact, alive. And that during a period of 40 days... They saw him, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God in Acts 1-3. At one of these meetings, Jesus commanded them explicitly not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. Wait for what the Father has promised. Well, what has the Father promised? He has promised the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you heard about from me. If you go back to Luke 24, 49, he said it again. If you look through the upper room discourse of Jesus, his farewell discourse to his disciples, John 14, 16, 14, 26, 15, 26. If you look to Acts 2, 33, He's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. And then he says in 1.5, For John baptized in water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In a little while, not many days from now. We know that in Ephesians 1.13, Paul tells those graced pagans in Laodicea that they had been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit of promise or the Spirit who was the Father's promise. Just as we're seeing that the glory of the Father is the Holy Spirit in connection with Jesus' resurrection from the dead 
and with a new way of life in which we may walk and serve. And in our future inevitable bodily resurrection. Romans 8.11. All of this is profoundly Trinitarian. Before there was an official doctrine of the Trinity through councils like Nicaea and Chalcedon and councils after that, before there was an official church doctrine of the Trinity, there was profoundly Trinitarian doctrine in the word of God. All of this, then, is profoundly Trinitarian, even before there was a doctrine or doctrines of the Trinity or the triune God. And, of course, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, at the heart of another significantly Trinitarian passage, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, that is, the glory of God the Father, shines forth in the face of Jesus Christ. If you have seen me, you have seen my Father. If you have seen my face, you have seen the face of my Father. If you have seen my hands and feet and side, you have seen the scars that my Father also bears. Now, according to Romans 1, verses 3 and 4, God's son, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, verse 4, was designated as the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead by the spirit of holiness or the Holy Spirit. Now, we just heard in Romans 6, 4 that he was raised by the glory of the father. Now we see that he was raised by the spirit of sanctification. We get the idea of a terrific unity in the divine members of the Trinity. Even though they are not identically the same person, there is a unity that goes much deeper than we imagined. The glory of the Father is equated, essentially, with the Holy Spirit. Now, if there's any ambiguity in the English translation, some people have a trouble with the spirit of sanctification. What is that? Is that the Holy Spirit? If there's any ambiguity in the English translations of this passage, there is no ambiguity, no uncertainty in Romans 8.11, either in the Greek, which says, to pneuma to egerantas yesun ek nekron, the spirit who resurrected Jesus from the dead. And in Romans 8, 11, it says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and will raise your very members, this, this very body. So there the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is in us. By the correlation of these verses, we receive the insight that the glory of the father is also the spirit of the father. Elsewhere, he is called the Spirit of the Son. Galatians 4, 6. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. He proceeded eternally from the Father and the Son. He proceeded. The divine processions are different from the divine missions, so keep your ears attuned to that. We need that differentiation of consciousness. 
There are the divine processions that happened eternally and internally in God. There's the divine missions that happen historically and temporally and are more external in one sense. The Holy Spirit, so this is, this is pneumatology in many regards. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. He proceeded eternally from the Father and the Son. He was sent and commissioned by the Father and the Son in the second divine mission. He was breathed. That's what spiration means in the technical theological vocabulary. He was breathed. Eternally spirated by the Father and the Son in the second divine procession. There's a difference between divine procession to and divine mission to. The Holy Spirit proceeded eternally from the Father and the Son in a passive spiration. It's the picture for us for understanding according to the, doc, according to the theological specialty of systematics is this. The Father and the Son breathe eternally. The Spirit is breathed. The Father and the Son breathe actively. The Spirit is breathed passively. You receive the Spirit passively, breathed by the Father and the Son. And I know I have to fan these things out. That's my strategy all the time. These things will be fanned out for better understanding. And he was breathed or spirated by the Father and the Son in the second divine procession as the Son was eternally begotten by the Father in the first divine procession, the procession of the Son from the Father. It does not mean that the Son was preceded by the Father in some way because the Father's begetting of the Son and the Son's being begotten are both eternal realities. Same with the Holy Spirit. It's not like the Holy Spirit. I, I hesitate tremendously now to say the third person of the Trinity. For one thing, I can't figure out which one's the third person of our, our Trinity with small t. But the second reason is the Holy Spirit was not preceded by the Father and the Son because he was spirated by the Father, because he was eternally spirated by the Father and the Son, but was eternally passively breathed by the Father and the Son. There's an eternality in God that's incomprehensible. In John 20, 22, Jesus breathed on his disciples. And with the breath... He bequeathed to them the Holy Spirit. He breathes. If most of us breathe on someone, they'll say, please don't do that again. But when Jesus breathed, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. He's a life-giving spirit in his resurrection. He is a life-giving spirit. He breathes life to you and into you and into me. And he keeps on doing it through the word. My, my words are spirit and life. That's why I always came to hear a preacher. That's why I keep coming. That's why I keep preaching. That's why I keep teaching because it's the breath of Christ 
The words of Christ are spirit. They are breath. They are life. People that go around without having the breath of life get to be pretty paltry in the Christian life. You can almost see the malnourishment in their spirit, in their soul. Sometimes people going through the worst kind of physical adversity, they may even be abhorrent to people. People don't want to see people in that kind of suffering. That's because they don't see that that soul may be the most healthy, nourished, and wonderful soul and human spirit that there is. You study the, if you watch the movie The Elephant Man, there's an excellent example of a man who was grotesque in his appearance. And yet his spirit and his soul were remarkably cordial and warm, intelligent, reasonable, responsible, and loving. Hollywood's infected us a little too much. The older you get, sometimes you see physical beauty and you're, you appreciate it for about a second, and then you see the anemic soul behind that. You see, it's, it's, a, it's a heart-wrenching thing. What's heart-wrenching is what we admire in this culture. I hope you're seeing a little bit of a contrast tonight in, in the message here. The father is always in his son. So listen. The son breathed his spirit to those disciples before Pentecost. This is before Pentecost. Because the word does not speak. The word, the eternal word is a word because he does not speak. That is, at least on his own initiative. Jesus even said it. I don't speak on my own. Why? Because I'm the word spoken. I am the word that the Father speaks. And oh, I speak, but only as I hear my Father. So my words are my Father's words echoing through me. It's not that I'm a puppet. It's not that my father's a ventriloquist. I'm one with my father in his thought, in his intent, in his love. But because the word does not speak on his own, but is spoken. And I'm speaking now of the eternal word in John 1, 1, who became flesh in John 1, 14. And because the Lord Jesus speaks only as he hears the father. Then it was the father who said in the son and with the son receive the Holy Spirit to those disciples. If you've seen me, you've seen my father. If you've heard me, you've heard my father. If I've breathed upon you to receive the spirit of life, I've breathed into you the glory of my father, the glory of my father that raised me from the dead the glory of my father that gloriously resurrected me after I was unspeakably humiliated and shamed in my crucifixion because I submitted to that for you. And because I love my father. What makes us think that the father who Jesus said, believe me, my father is in me and I'm in my father. What makes us think that the father wasn't in him on the cross? Well, he said, father, 
My, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But did the father forsake him? The answer is emphatically no. But because Jesus was so radically identified with the creation and the essence of sin, the essence of sinfulness, and he became sin, remember? He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. And as he became sin, he said, why have you forsaken me? Because it's the essence of the sinfulness of man to think that God forsakes his creation. And he doesn't. That was the perception of Jesus at that moment because of the level of suffering he was enduring and because of the depth of his identification with a desperate creation and with a desperate humanity who in their direst straits are tempted to say and do say, you have abandoned me, God. What about those 10 bodies found in the back of an 18-wheeler in San Antonio in a parking lot? What about them? They died in there. And it took a long time. And they were, it was in the blistering heat. They had no air. And no one was paying attention or cared because they were just immigrants from across the state, across the line. What do you think their last moments were? If I was there, I might have said, God, you've forsaken us. Why? Why have you forsaken us here? You know how many people die in that sense of forsakenness? and they, It's the essence of who we are in our fall that we assume that God has forsaken us in our direst moments. And Jesus was in a direst of all moments. It was his perception, his real perception, that the Father forsook him. But did he? Then if he did, then why does the Scripture say God, the Father, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? When? In the cross. At the cross, on the cross. Never even dream in your wildest dreams that the Father did not suffer. Or that the spirit did not suffer. If the spirit can be grieved by human sinfulness. As Ephesians 4.30 says. Grieve not the spirit whereby you have been sealed until the day of redemption. We grieve the spirit by corrupt communication. Rotten speech. We hear it all day long. Now it's crept into more and more hours of television. Now it's allowed on more and more hours of the stations that we used to watch and thought we might be safe from it. Now it's everywhere. And if we're not attentive, we echo the same rotten speech. And it grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Don't ever think it doesn't. If he can be grieved by the sinfulness of man, how much more was he grieved when Christ became sin? It's a Trinitarian thing we're talking about here. The salvific act of God in Christ. The father is always in his son. John 14, 11, Jesus was emphatic about it. He said, believe me. I can hear my father saying, you better believe it. He would say. Like in baseball season, my dad's favorite team was the L.A. Dodgers because he used to like the Brooklyn Dodgers, and then they became the L.A. Dodgers. 
And I would say, man, that Sandy Koufax can pitch. And my dad would say, you better believe it. Jesus said, you better believe my father is in me. My father is in me. As if to prepare them for the cross, because they would look at the cross and say, where'd the father go here? Jesus wants them to know that while he's on the cross, enduring unspeakable shame, humiliation, and agony, worse than the pain was the shame that the father was in him. And that he was reconciling the world that did that to him, to himself, not imputing their sins to them, including the sins of crucifying his son. Now, I don't know if I'll get to speak what I spoke spoke of last night. It's almost unspeakable to speak of it, but I want to repeat it sometime. When we have people that say, well, I was sexually abused and Jesus knows nothing about that. I would say to you that you are ignorant of the fact that at the cross and before the cross and in the scourging and in the hours which the Romans had him in their barracks, he was sexually abused. And that he was not wearing a loincloth like a religion likes to make the crucifix a little more palatable. They stripped you completely naked so that the buttocks as well as the back could be exposed to the cat of nine tails as they ripped the skin and then the flesh and then got into the skeletal muscles, causing circulatory death in some who were weaker of constitution. And even Jesus buckled under the weight of the cross and had to, the cross had to be carried by a man from North Africa named Simeon. And on the cross, the crucified victims were mocked, they were jeered, their sexual genitalia was exposed to be mocked by people that went by. Certainly the Romans mocked the circumcised penises of the crucified Jews. And people were allowed, in fact, encouraged. It's like a holiday. You go by, you, you, you're able to say all the cursing and jeering and filthy stuff that you want to say and point it right at those guys up there on that cross. And thousands did from all over the world. Others just wondered in spectacular wonder at it. It's a very sobering thing that to know that the Romans put that crown of thorns on them in a scarlet robe and beat him and spit spit upon him but we forget that the gospel writers were very as preachers must be they were very understanding that you can't talk too much about it but it sends a shiver down the spine to know that he was with those roman soldiers for hours after that before the cross and these guys were out of their discipline altogether these were the ultimate in depravity. I'm saying that to say that there are people who say, well, you don't know what it's like, and God doesn't know what it's like, and they want to glory in their shame. And of course, it's a terrible shame, and it's a terrible thing to have been sexually abused in one's youth or in one's adulthood. But it's not an excuse. You can't say, well, the glory of the Father can't raise me out of that unspeakable humiliation into a life of glory and service and honor and newness. Why not? 
Furthermore, what did Jesus say about those who abused him and those who were continually abusing him as he was naked and hanging upon a tree next to, in between two other criminals? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. It's like he said to Jonah, they don't even know they're left from the right. They were already convinced, obviously. You have to be convinced that a human being is less than human before you persecute and hate and malign and slander them. Like the Nazis in their documents persuaded the German people, many of them, that the Jews were vermin, rats. They dehumanized them. The crucifixion is the most dehumanizing form of execution ever conceived to the point where it required a diabolical conceiving because the victim on the cross actually had to be responsible for his own death. The writhing that happens on the cross and the movements you have to make just to get a breath are the very movements that ultimately kill you. It's the most utter humiliation. And I think Jesus knew a little bit about that when he was approaching the cross. He said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down. I lay it down. I have the power to lay my life down, but I want you to know that I have the power to take it back again. When you really see the cross, there's a therapy there that's unparalleled. There's a therapy there for the abused. There's a therapy there for the oppressed. There's a therapy there for the most egregious suffering that people have endured and illnesses that people have endured. And it relates to the forgiveness. It also relates to the perpetrators of abuse. You cannot glory in the shame of your own evil doing when you look at the cross. Why glory in what your shame is when you can glory in the cross, which ended the shame? That's the message that I have as a pastor. That's the message that I have that goes beyond the messages that I preach. It's the hardest one to say because it has to come from the deepest recesses of the heart. And it has to be a message that's almost you feel unlawful to say it. But that's the cross. Cross was unlawful. The cross was ungodly. The cross was irreverent. The cross was everything that's ugly and repugnant, everything that's terrible and wrong. Because it reflects back to us just how terribly wrong humanity had gone. And just what kind of price would have to be paid to set things right. It's not enough to just say, well, Jesus died the spiritual death. It was terrible and that, you know, that that's why we have righteousness as a gift. That's, that's a very superficial, if not wrong-headed, way of looking at the cross. When you get right down to the heart of it, God was in Christ during the unspeakable ordeal of the crucifixion. He had not abandoned or forsaken Jesus, listen carefully, even though 
in the throes of this indescribable agony, this unspeakable humiliation and shame. This was Jesus' perception. Just as it is the perception of humanity and of all creation in its direst straits. And after he suffered and died, after he was raised to life by the glory of the Father, when Jesus actively breathed, the Father was in him then too. When the Father breathes, the Son breathes and says, Receive the Spirit. The Spirit is of the Father and the Son. The Spirit is of the crucified Messiah. And the Spirit is of the Father. So the glory of the Father that raised Jesus from the dead and the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead are one in that sense. You can see how things that you see, once you see them, the challenge is to articulate them say them so as the father was in the son when the son was dying the son the father is in the son after the son was raised and when the son was raised and when the son breathed and when the spirit was passively breathed and then passively received by the disciples the father was in the son breathing too Christ is the second man, as he's called in 1 Corinthians 15, later in the chapter after our exegesis. And I will add, because it's a seamless part of the revelation that the Spirit's giving to this church, he's our kinsman redeemer. Brian's message was a seamless part of the garment of God in this, what God is revealing in this church. He's our kinsman redeemer. He's the last Adam. He's the man from heaven. And not from the dust of the earth as the first man was. He is a life-giving spirit because he is divine and God is a spirit. And he's human. He who died in unspeakable shame was raised to indescribable glory. He gives the life of the coming age. It's what he does. He's a life-giving spirit. 1 Corinthians 15:45 He breathes the spirit of life. He gives the life of the coming age when he breathes into us. It's the life of the coming age. The consciousness you now have of the crucified Christ is seeing in a glass darkly what you will see when you see him face to face. And the appreciation and the doxology, and the glorification, and the praise, and the thanksgiving will flood from your heart forever. It'll gush from your soul forever, like waters, living waters springing up into eternal life. It's his own life that makes us alive. Being dead in trespasses and sins, you were made alive together with Christ. It's his own life. And that is why, and perhaps this will be the point I need to make 
the last one tonight. I'm going to have to go on in this subject, and I may have to repeat certain things that are very difficult to talk about in future messages because this message is reaching down deeper than the depths that people have fallen. This message reaches deeper than the deepest depths to which people have fallen. The Father and the Spirit are likewise active in this gift of life, in this rectification of the ungodly, this setting right of what's gone terribly wrong. People like to say it today, and prophets they call themselves pastors or evangelists. We, we say it all the time. Peace, peace. There is no peace. Things are okay. Things are not okay. The terrible state of the world and of creation and of mankind requires a total transformation and a rectification that's already rooted in the cross and will be realized in the apocatastasis pantone. I'm certain of the apocatastasis pantone. I am certain of the restoration gloriously of all things because I am certain of the horrifically shameful death that Jesus died to set things right. So things have to be set right. And in God, they already have been. The justification of the ungodly, and I'll keep that word justification just for that, in Romans 4, 5. God justifies the ungodly. That's the, really the heart and center of Romans. So who can lay any charge to God's elect? God who justifies? God justifies the ungodly. So what ungodly thing can, this, can the accuser say of you that God will say, yeah, that's right? He justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify our ungodliness. Christ died for that. The justification of the ungodly is the setting right of what is wrong with mankind under sin. Capital S-I-N. What is wrong is that mankind is dead in sins. That's about as wrong as it gets. It's about as hopeless as it gets. Dead. In sins. Ephesians 2.1. Setting a person right. And that's what we would call justification. Setting a person right. Is gifting a person with the life of the risen Christ. Not imputing to them a legal righteousness. Oh, that's not it. That might be a tiny part of it. And even Ernst Kosman was very strong on the forensic meaning of justification. I'm, I'm not with him entirely on that, but I'm with him entirely on the gospel not being an individual thing, but a universal thing. So let me say it again. The justification of the ungodly is the setting right of what is wrong with mankind under sin. Man is dead in sins. 
So setting a person right or justification is gifting a person with the life of the risen Christ. That's why we must not view or define justification as merely the imputation, legally, forensically, of righteousness. Even if it's Christ's own righteousness. Justification involves the gift of life. The gift of Christ's own life that replaces our deadness in sins. That's why Romans 5.18 says that through the one righteous act of the one man, Jesus Christ, there is life-giving justification, it says. Dikaiosin or dikaiosin zoes. It doesn't say legal justification. It says the rectification that consists of life. It's not, we're not talking about a legal forensic righteousness here. We're talking about a setting right of what was horribly wrong, a setting gloriously right. As many as he foreknew, those he justified. And who? You tell me who God didn't foreknow. If he didn't spare his son, but freely gave him up on behalf of us all, how shall he not with him being given freely give us all things? So there is life-giving justification, dikaiosin zoes, for all. And that's the same all who were previously under Condemnation or kata krima. Jesus doesn't say those who do evil be raised to kata krima, condemnation. That's what we already have by virtue of Adam's unrighteous act and transgression. They will be raised to krisis, which is a judgment of acquittal, a judgment of Because God justifies the ungodly. So what happens when the ungodly are bodily resurrected? Well, he damns them. No, he doesn't. So God damn doesn't make any sense. Even though people like to say that. God justifies. So next time you hit your hammer, you hit a hammer on your thumb, and you're tempted to say something terrible like you would have in your old days, like I would have, In my old days, I would say, God, justify it. (laughs) That ungodly act of hitting my thumb with a hammer. God, justify that act. Now, so we must not view justification as merely the imputation of righteousness. The divine processions are internal. They are internal to God. They are eternal. And perhaps this is where we may go from fanning out the divine missions. But I want to make it clear. People glory in their shame. Remember Philippians 3.18. Enemies of the cross of Christ who glory in their shame. Their shame is their glory. They glory in their shame. People like to glory in their shame. That's why we have shows on TV that people come on. 
so that therapists can yell at the people that abuse them and yell at the abused and they, they you know, that, that's, it's entertainment value. I have another word for it. I won't use it. But they parade their shame. They glory in their shame. They keep the shame. They actually are willingly submitted to the shame that enslaves them and they like it. The only cure for that is not a therapist yelling at you so that he can get ratings and glory on TV. It's the therapy of the cross that works. The therapy of the cross that works. People glory in their shame when they excuse themselves from the new way of life and service because of their former or their current shame or because of their former or their current sinfulness, which they want to keep. People want to keep their shame, too, you know, because it's their thing. It's their way of garnering sympathy from everybody. And they sympathize with themselves. They caress themselves in their shame. Now say that, again, someone was sexually abused. And this is more and more something that is likely to happen to more and more people and more and more children. It's a horrible thing. I can't even, I can't imagine it. This is certainly a shameful thing, but one cannot say, I was sexually abused, therefore I'm excluded from the new way of life, or I excuse myself from it. After all, Jesus was never sexually abused. There's another part of the excuse. So I would say to that person, here's my therapy, and it's free. It's not $400 an hour. It's free. And even though we have offerings, it's not because we're charging for the message. It's because God chooses that way of the generosity of his people to keep a pastor preaching, keep a staff working, keep a church going on and allow people to receive the message without cost. So this is free advice. I would say to this person, you're dead wrong on two of the three declarations you just made. Yes, you are sexually abused. We'll agree with that. You've provided proof. You've provided a testimony of it. But no, you are not excluded from the new way of life. Nor are you excused. And you must understand, thirdly, that crucifixion involved every form of human shame and abuse imaginable, including sexual abuse. Now, the writers, the evangelists, and Paul, they knew what crucifixion meant. They didn't have to describe it like preachers do to manipulate their audiences on Good Fridays once a year. They hit all these terrible things. But they don't even really get to the shame part. They just get to the things that can manipulate people. And movies do the same thing. They may be accurate. They may be inaccurate. They're called passion plays. They manipulate the audience into a grief that is finally assuaged and you go out and you feel better because you're redeemed and stuff. There's nothing wrong with that, but this is different. When Jesus was mocked and abused by the Roman soldiers, we're told only that which was done in public view. That was bad enough, and that wasn't even fully described. He was with these 
however, for several hours, which ought to send a shiver up your spine. Now, what is it in your shame that you want to hold on to and glory in your shame? You might be a person that deserves a lot of sympathy. But you're an enemy of the cross of Christ if you use that as an excuse to not be raised into this new way of life by the glory of the Father. Many are the enemies of the cross of Christ, Paul said. I'm telling you now, I've told you before, I'm telling you now with tears streaming down my face, he said. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. And of other things he said to them, he, about them, he said, whose glory is their shame. They glory in their shame. The only cure for glorying in your shame is to glory in the cross. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down, enthroned at the right hand of the Father in glory. We have to face the unspeakable humiliation of Jesus Christ crucified in order to deeply appreciate two things, the state of creation and especially of mankind, which required that act as redemption. And secondly, to understand just who Yahweh is. When you have lifted me up, then you'll know that I am he, Yahweh. It's that realization that's going to come like a locomotive that has already come to some of us who have bowed our knee and made our confession that Jesus is Lord, but it will come to all in a, the most profound possible way. For every eye will see him, even those who pierced him especially those who pierced him. Every eye will see him. And of course he retains those scars forever because the Holy Spirit forever is the spirit of the crucified Messiah. And the Holy Spirit is forever the glory of the Father that raised him from the dead after his burial, after his suffering, after the untold humiliation. Of crucifixion. Stop glorying in your shame and start glorying in the cross of your Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to reach deep into the scriptures to find a treasure in the darkness that we did not know perhaps was there. Because we cannot find, we don't find treasures except in the deepest part of the earth sometimes and sometimes we find the deepest part of the treasures of God in the deepest kind of darkness it's in the depth of the darkness of the crucifixion of our Savior Jesus Christ that we see the most glorious wealth and riches and the most wonderful apocalyptic revelation of the heart of God May it never be that we should ever glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ.
Father, grant by your unmeriting, unmerited grace, grant us freedom from glorying in our shame. Grant us the freedom instead to glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things and we present